0: the horse and hound podcast hello and welcome to the horse and hound podcast i'm pippa room magazine editor here at horse and hound i hope everyone's had a good week you might even be looking forward to your first haircut or your first pub pint in three months or is it your first dressage test that you're looking forward to Our guest this week on the podcast is Anna Ross, Grand Prix dressage rider, trainer, horse and hound columnist, and one of the sport's great characters. Anna talks about how she came into dressage from an unhorsey background and reveals the most valuable
1: piece of advice she's picked up along the way. Never get back on for a third time. If you've already fallen off it twice, don't go back for more.
0: Our news team will be joining me to talk about whether 2021 could be the year we have both at Olympics and at European Championship. And vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine talks to us about gastric ulcers, the most effective way to manage sufferers, and how you and your vet can work through the best possible treatments for a good outcome.
2: We've actually changed the way in which we are terming these to be a little bit more specific. Imagine it as gastric disease, but there are two forms of the gastric disease.
0: Ricky with everything you need to know later in the podcast. So pull on your hat
3: and let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's guest interview. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse & Hounds and I'm very excited to be joined today by Anna Ross. Anna is an international Grand Prix rider and trainer who runs Elite Dressage, a sales and training facility down in lovely Devon. Hi Anna. Hi Polly. Anna just take us back to the beginning a little bit. You're not actually from a horsey background, are you?
1: No, I'm absolutely not. Um no, I'm from London. I'm I'm London born and bred. And whilst um I loved I always loved all animals and was particularly obsessed with horses when I when I was young. No, certainly there's no horsey background in in my family at all.
3: So when did you actually ride your first dressage test?
1: When I was 23.
3: Fabulous. You've certainly come a long way. You're also featured in this week's magazine in our Life Lessons series. What have been the best pieces of advice that you have been given during your career that have helped you get to where you are now?
1: Never get back on for a third time. If you've already fallen off it twice,
3: don't go back for more. (laughs) Fair enough. Is that something that you feel strongly about in terms of horses with good temperaments and focusing on that within the business?
1: Yeah, um, I think one of my strengths, to be fair, is working with horses that are not ideal for the job. Um, I'm not sure if I would, I want that to be what I'm remembered for, but I think it may be. We now try and breed for horses that have good conformation, find the job easy, and I think that makes horses have good temperaments. I think generally horses have troublesome temperaments when they're struggling in their work, And I have had quite a few horses like that in my career that I've had to find ways round things for. And and to be fair, most of my Grand Prix horses have come to me because they were difficult horses in the beginning. Now I'm determined to give myself an easy life in the future by breeding (laughs) lots of purpose-bred, calm, sensible, well-rounded young horses. And that's what I seek to breed and produce from, from my stables now.
3: Presumably one of those slightly trickier Grand Prix horses you're referring to would have been Liebling, who you took to the European Championships in 2007.
1: Yes, Liebling was very naughty as a young horse. He was very funny. He he, he was never nasty. He just thought he was hilarious. He was over-engined and undisciplined um, and willful and very (laughs) nappy. And I it would be fair to say, I think I spent as much time running after him as I did riding him when he was a four-year-old. But obviously, he, he taught me an awful lot. And he was the first horse that I took from a green four-year-old all the way through to championship team.
3: And that Europeans must have been one of the biggest highlights of your career, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I think it was certainly a, a career highlight. It was a a great thing. I was very lucky. I don't suffer too much with competition nerves. Um, So I thought it was all rather excellent to be there and had a jolly good time and did well. I ended up coming 10th. Um, So that was terrific. And it was a thoroughly successful week.
3: Is there any particular advice that you would give to somebody in a similar position to that that you once were in, in terms of not being from a horsey family, but wanting to get into the sport?
1: I think the really important thing to do is is listen and learn. People tend to set up very early on their own these days. That's a kind of increasing trend. My advice would be to, to listen, listen to other people. I think that's one thing I had the good sense to do. Um, and I think that would be that would be my very good piece of advice. And also to remember that your riding skill means more. Than anybody's gold baubled stable yard, right? <laughs> and I think that was very important when I went when I did that team at the Europeans. You know, Carl, Charlotte, Emil. You know, all there are many, many people in this sport who did not start off with with all the bells and whistles who've done extremely well. Absolutely, but I think if people spent more time thinking about what they could do about it and less time complaining about what they haven't got, they would do a lot better. The only difference was when I was at that European Championships was that my horse cost, I think he was €6,000. So he probably was the cheapest <laughs> horse there, but I didn't care. I thought he was great. Um, I didn't have the lorry, so that was all right. The the Bechel Simons let me sit in theirs. So that was fine. I think I got a few sponsored lunches. Um, again, the Bechel Simer family, wonderful Wilfred, Wilfred. Um, it was such a loss to us uh, and the bees were amazing to me. I, I had a jolly good laugh with Emma Hindle and Fiona Bigwood and it was never a thing. And it's so boring when I hear that all the time. Or oh, I haven't got, I haven't got, you know, people see people trying hard. They will help.
3: Because you certainly did work hard, didn't you? Is oh, it yes. right that you sold sandwiches at one point to uh, to help fund your career? <laughs> the infamous sandwich round, yes. <laughs>
1: I did. I did everything. Um, I, I did i worked in bars lots of bars i always say if i wasn't a dressage rider now i would still work in a a bar i like doing that i used to get up very early in the morning and i used to um make my sandwiches and i used to go out and i used to sell them and then i used to teach in the afternoon or ride or whatever and then i used to go and work in the pub in the evening and um and, and uh, sort of along the way, there were many. I was very lucky. There were many people who who helped me out, mostly because I think they thought I was absolutely nuts, <laughs> but obviously willing to work incredibly hard. Um, and and Pammy Hutton and then Adam Kemp helped uh, helped help me, and they let me go to Talent for nothing, and and they they really helped me out a lot. And I wouldn't have been a dressage rider if it wasn't for them. So it is their fault um, <laughs> entirely, I think.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you have certainly worked incredibly hard to get to where you have got to. Uh, just tell me a little bit about your current top horses. I, uh, I gather you have two that are very different to each other.
1: Oh, I have. To, they are so different. Um, I have two horses. I have one that is a Grand Prix horse and one that is approaching Grand Prix, and they are completely different people. I have uh, Delgado. I I adore that horse. He's a big cuddly, friendly, affable, and, and very talented <laughs> horse. Um, but I, I, I do treat him like my pet. I've always been incredibly fond of him. The other is the grey mare, Beth Bainbridge, who's worked for me for a long time, has um, competed a lot. Delgado's always been very laid back um, and really not bothered whether he goes to shows or not. The other one, there's nothing laid back about her at all. She is an absolute (laughs) firecracker. To the point where Beth even managed to fall off her after her test at (laughs) Addington Premier League, Um, which Beth was not very impressed about, but everyone else thought was quite funny. Um, (laughs) And she won her regionals and was off to the winters. She's an outrageously... Talented horse that is doing all the things from the Grand Prix now, uh, but she's only eight. So, again, she needs time. I'm, mm. I'm not she'll, she'll have the time that she needs. She's a lovely horse.
3: And her name's Habouche, is that right? Habouche, yeah.
1: Habouche. Holly, we call
3: her. Brilliant. And what's the plan for once competitions get back up and running, hopefully very soon?
1: Well, I, I think really this year is possibly a bit of a write off we might do something towards the towards the end of the year i mean this is only for me we have many horses in the stables that will go out and compete Um, and I actually I've I've got a five-year-old that I like um, which is quite unusual because I don't normally ride the horses until they're older but I've I've commandeered this particular one that I would quite like to take out abroad next year and and sort of start getting her used to seeing the sights as well Mm. so you never know I might be making my (laughs) my
3: comeback at lower levels well I'm really excited to see her out and about as well as your other two horses further up the levels tell us a little bit about how you and your team have managed during lockdown uh I hear you've actually been pretty busy over the last couple of months
1: yeah we have been pretty busy actually um I think one of the benefits of living in partial isolation down in the depths of Devon is that from many in many ways lockdown didn't affect us enormously um We've got a lot of new initiatives that we've been using um, for sales horses anyway. It gave me a chance to get our website up and running because I was teaching less. That was really the main difference. But we have a very large group of horses to produce here. So we just kept producing them, really, which means that we now have more to sell. Now we're sort of the, the lockdown is easing a bit.
3: Absolutely. Um, so just tell us about the business, your your aim, your ethos. It's about bringing together British breeders, buyers and horses, isn't it? Yeah, that's the idea really. Back in 2018,
1: Lorna Wilson, who owns the Newton Stud and is also the owner of Elite Stallions, which imports a great deal of the semen from Europe into this country. We started talking about the two businesses and how it would be sensible really to put the whole thing together in some way or at least in closer proximity and then the place next door to Lorna's in Devon came up for sale so that's how it evolved really and it just seemed that there were so many fantastic horses being bred in England but I think it's fair to say the British are not the best at marketing their horses. These horses (laughs) tend to Sort of disappear, really. The, the British breeders breed a lot of very good horses, but there's no real route to market. And I think the English are generally more reticent about buying at auction. And um, therefore, it seemed that there was this big gap in the market, which it might be quite good fun to try to fill. <laughs> I'm somebody who likes new things. Uh, a lot of dressage people are quite traditional and like old things i don't i like <laughs> new things and new
3: initiatives doing it differently
1: yeah and we thought it could it could work really well and it has
3: brilliant thank you so much for joining us today on the horse and hound podcast anna it's been really really great to chat
1: that's lovely nice to chat too
0: I'm here with Horse and Hands News Editor Eleanor Jones and Senior News Writer Lucy Elder. Good morning. Hello. Morning. Morning. So we were just talking about the fact that uh, I've got sore stomach muscles this week, but I think it's because I uh, schooled a horse for the first time on Saturday for the first time in about three months. How's the week been for you guys? Eleanor, what have you been up to?
4: Well, I I took my big mare out for arena hire um, for the first time since March, and she was very very excited, and basically went from one side of a I think it's about forty meters wide of the arena to the other in about three strides, <laughs> which, <laughs> sideways, which was interesting. <laughs> oh, and Lucy, what about you? Have you been riding? I
5: have yes, um, similar similar to the sounds of Eleanor's mare as well. I think I made the decision to ride in those strong winds on Saturday, um, and I got on and I thought, oh no, we're we're in for one today. And she was a bit explosive, but um, but we
0: calmed down after that. So um, mm. yeah, I think your problem is mares, girls. I like mm. well, we have a nice sensible gelding in my family, and he's pretty much always the same, whatever the weather's doing. And I really <laughs> recommend that. <laughs> oh, I think that's a discussion for another day. But moving on. <laughs> This week, we've been looking at a story about the 2021 European Championships. So, earlier this year, it was announced that those championships in eventing, dressage, show jumping, and para dressage had to be cancelled for next year because of the Tokyo Olympics now happening in 2021. But then this week, we've been excited to hear that that might not actually be a final answer. Lucy, what's been happening there?
5: Yeah, it's quite exciting, actually. So, the European Equestrian Federation, who we don't hear from a huge amount, had put forward a proposal to the FEI so the FEI cancelled next summer's Europeans back in May to avoid having two championships in one year and the clash with Tokyo but the EEF European Equestrian Federation basically had heard from a lot of people in the show jumping world that they were quite keen for for the Europeans to go ahead so they put a proposal to the FEI board meeting last week and they've not had an outright no which is <laughs> quite positive so they at the moment uh, they've gone away and they're putting forward a, uh, they've been asked to put forward a sort of realistic proposal
0: um addressing some of the details that might be possible mm, that's really interesting we've talked a lot recently about things being uncancelled and it's a joke we were making last week about that being another new word but it seems like quite a major uncancellation if it does happen if we do get a european's back doesn't it
5: definitely um as i was just saying the eef aren't a body we hear from all that often and it's really interesting how organized the the jumping world's been in this as well i think i was reading uh, some of the supporting documents that went with the proposal sort of in the lead up to it and it's it's not just riders it's organizers and owners and various others who And national federations as well have said it's not something they'd be against. So it seems there's quite a unified
0: want for it to happen. Mm, It's good to see the Jumping World being quite united there. And Hopefully that's something maybe that the other sports can, can take a lead from. And I know that one of the major objections to having the Euros next year was whether nations would be able to get enough riders together to field a team at both the Olympics and the Europeans. Um, Eleanor, what, what do you think about that with your sort of knowledge of, uh, of, of the strength and depth or otherwise that nations have?
4: Well, one thing, of course, that will be happening uh, at Tokyo next year would have obviously happened this year is that the new rules come in. So there's only going to be three to a team. So that's obviously fewer combinations would have had the chance to go. And so a Europeans next year would give national federations, as British show jumping said, the chance to maybe get some combinations championship experience, because of course there wouldn't be any Olympic qualification for the next games on offer at next year's Europeans so it gives people that championship experience um, to then hopefully go on for the world games the following year at which Olympic qualification would be on offer again. And it would
0: feel like with only three per team as you say there are a lot of nations that really do have plenty of horses and riders and could easily field those championship teams and of course, there's also the possibility that, that Tokyo might not go ahead and, uh, and, and then possibly we could have a Europeans, depending on the situation with COVID in different parts of the world. So that would be quite, quite an important reason for keeping the Europeans on the table, wouldn't it?
4: Yes, because of course, usually there's a championship every year. Um, and so that would be great for all the sports and all the stakeholders, as Lucy was saying, to still have a championship.
0: And even assuming that Tokyo does go ahead, there is a precedent for having two championships in one year. I'm aware of a couple of times it's happened. I don't know if any uh, any listeners can think of any others and I'd be thrilled to hear about them if so. I think there might be a feature in this. But... um, I know that in 1986, the World Eventing Championships were in Gawler in Australia, and because a lot of nations couldn't afford to send horses there and there was a a lengthy quarantine process, they also ran an alternative World Championships at Bialy Bor in Poland. Um, My absolute favourite part of this story is that Ginny Elliott, Ginny Leg as she was then, won in Gawler on Priceless, she won in Bialy Bor on Nightcap, and she then went to Burley that autumn and won Burley on Murphy himself. I just love the fact that she was so incredibly dominant. She won all three of those competitions on different horses in the same year. What a legend. Amazing. <laughs> and also the other one, which really links into something I'm working on at the moment, is... Um, is that in 1980, a lot of nations boycotted the Olympics. um, And although they did run an Olympics, the the entries were small. And there were alternative Olympics in all three of the major disciplines um, held at different venues. So there was Goodwood for dressage, Rotterdam for jumping, and Fontainebleau for eventing, and i've uh, I've been having a lot of fun conversations this week for a feature that we've got coming up in in a special in July about those championships talking to people both who went to the boycotted Olympics and to people who went to those alternatives.
5: Yes, um, two completely separate games where you went to very much one or the other, and and it'd be interesting looking back at those to how it how it could work this time round. I mean, in eventing, slightly different, where you know it's unlikely you'd have a have the same horse rider combination going to both championships, but you know, I mean, it's going to depend on the rules and and what they allow, but you might well have the same rider at both. And then again, in jumping or dressage, where it's possible you could have the same combinations at both and who knows what the rules are going to say or how close together those championships could be. Don't mind if they both go ahead at all or but yeah I'm quite excited to to find out and then to look back and yeah I think that could well be a feature looking at as you are saying about how 1986,
0: 1980 and 2021 all all pan out. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because I think I would assume that they would allow the same riders to go to both championships next year if they do go ahead. It's not Mm. the same situation as sort of the boycott year. But I think, yeah, like... Obviously, in dressage and jumping, it's more likely that top level horses, they do compete more often. Although I do love the fact that Mark Kyle rode at Burley two weeks after the Athens Olympics on Drunk and Disorderly. So that horse (sighs) went to an Olympics, two weeks later went to Burley. Obviously, Athens was a lot nearer than Tokyo and and certainly European horses would have a, a lot of traveling to take into account mm-hmm. which might make that a tougher call but I imagine the time scale might be longer so we'll we'll see what happens it's a, it would be an unusual situation and uh and it'd be fascinating to see how it pans out.
5: It's nice to have things like this to talk about as well at the moment with things being cancelled and as you were saying the uncancelled seems to be our word of word of the week at the moment mm-hmm. but to have to suddenly have the possibility of not just, you know, the Olympics being back on next year, but the possibility of the Europeans as well and potentially in the same year. And I'm possibly getting massively ahead of myself here, but it's, <laughs> it's quite
0: exciting to have conversations like this and how it might look and how it might work. And Eleanor, I think we were chatting a little bit earlier about uh, what venues might be willing to sort of pick up the, uh, pick up the mantle for a short notice Europeans.
4: Yeah, so one thing the EF said as well was that if developments come to their attention in a timely fashion about the other disciplines, um, they will address that matter of them holding European championships as well. So, of course, like as often happens, if you can run show jumping championships then often the dressage and the para dressage would run not at the same time but within the same event like Rotterdam last year so um and obviously eventing has got different requirements but there are some venues like say Arken as Carl Hester mentions in his column this week that could do all of them so who knows.
0: Yeah I've been lucky enough to, to go to aachen I went to the uh, 2015 Europeans there and um they, they. although it wasn't the championship, they did run an event to competition alongside the uh, Europeans that were happening there at that same time. And of course, they've run the World Equestrian Games in Arkan with eight different disciplines. So that would certainly. Be an incredible venue. If they did feel like they could, uh, they could pick it up. It's, I, it's a place I feel so privileged to have been. And, you know, they've got everything there. They've got these. Uh, one of the things I love is they've got these plaques, sort of in the sidewalk, in the pavement, where they've got like horseshoes of famous horses. So it's like a, a wall of fame, and it's just a venue that everybody should should go to at some point and see. So it would be amazing if they did feel like they were a venue that might bid to run a championship, but we are speculating there. uh, We don't have any inside information from (laughs) (laughs) Arlen.
4: Yeah, I was supposed to be going there for the first time this year to report on the show in June, so very much hoping i can get there at some point oh
0: i don't know i think we're gonna to have to have like a, a a kind of honoring this year's promises policy on horse and how next year so everything that everyone was promised they were going to get to do this year for the first time is going to have to roll over and uh, oh. you're going to have to you're going to have to go to ark and polly our dress is going to have to go to her first olympics lucy's hopefully going to get here to the paralympics so <laughs> we're, all, oh, we're all holding out for another year <laughs> mm. Eleanor we were also saying that it's not just international championships are looking to the future this week we are seeing sad cancellations such as the festival of british eventing but there is also some some upbeat news on the show jumping side
4: yes yeah, so british show jumping has released their plan to hopefully run the national championships from the 4th to 9th of august at stoneleigh as was planned they hadn't been cancelled anyway but they're saying now that if multi day shows are allowed in august then they're, they're looking at a plan of how that could work and of course that Will it will be different to every other year, where usually safe than for the national class. If you get your double clears and then you jump at second rounds, and of course none of the second rounds have happened, but they're they're looking at ways they could do it. There might even be some direct qualifiers at the event for some of the titles. And yeah, it sounds fantastic. I know I'm going to be doing my best to try and get there.
0: Finally, on a different topic and a very serious one, we're going to talk more on the podcast next week about mental health and depression among riders, particularly jockeys, which has sadly become such a timely story. And it's something you've been looking into and and reading a lot more about, Lucy. Yes, it's been
5: a horrible week. um, And our thoughts also now very much with the family of Liam Treadwell, who sadly died aged 34. And I've been reading and listening to and having quite a lot of discussions this week about surrounding that and about support and proactive support and where it's needed and where it's already happening and where it's perhaps not happening and I think a lot of people have been having those those conversations as well and racing I mean racing does have support out there and I must say that in the shape of racing welfare um, injured jockeys fund lots of other organizations and this isn't Certainly isn't about knocking or taking away from the good work they're doing. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's another another young life gone, another family grieving. And the feels right now that there's a real desire for, for more to be done call it support for want of a better word but a sort of proactive drive and a focus on addressing causes and support around those causes rather than treating symptoms in in the many areas that go into the well-being of a person throughout their life and career so yeah so this week I'm very much looking into that and anything that i can look into or shine light on or support or call for or help push towards achieving it that might help even if it's one more person
0: and so one more family doesn't have to go through this and that's very much what we're going to do thank you lucy it's such an important thing for us to address and as you say to shine light where we can well thank you both for joining us this week Uh, lucy and Eleanor. have a good week thank you thanks Right, time for our regular slot with vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine. Take it away, Ricky.
2: One of the most interesting and I think um, developing topics in the industry at the moment is probably gastric ulcers. I think a lot of people should get away from the term gastric ulcer as well. We've actually changed the way in which we are terming these to be a little bit more specific. Imagine it as gastric disease. But there are two forms of the gastric disease. There is gastric squamous disease and gastric glandular disease, squamous disease being at the top of the stomach, which most people still associate with gastric ulceration and gastric glandular disease, which is at the bottom of the stomach. And I think that's one of the most important things at the moment, that there's a clear delineation between the two. We understand a lot about squamous disease and a lot about that classical kind of gastric ulceration. we are still learning a lot about gastric glandular disease. And I think this is where I've had a few questions pop up with regards to off-license medication. If you hit Facebook, you will read everything out there with regards to treating ulcers, treating pyloric ulcers, gastric disease, squamous disease, whatever. I think we've got to pull it back to basics. There are drugs that are licensed for use in horses on the market that vets are allowed to prescribe for those individual cases that it's actually licensed for. The thing that most people don't really realize, and it should be really well explained to people when they're first actually given these things, is that you use a licensed preparation first and you need to use it in accordance with its data sheet. Its data sheet is the bit that protects you and the patient to say that that drug works in that condition if it's given in this type of order or fashion. The vast majority of people when they feed, they usually get the syringe, dump the syringe in, feed the horse, off they go, hoping and willing that they have got on top of that gastric disease. Alas, that's probably not the case. A lot of people find that gastric equine gastric squamous disease and glandular disease is really, really quite frustrating. Like they find they'll do four to six weeks' worth of treatment. Uh, you get the horse rescoped, and it hasn't gone. You do another four to six weeks, it hasn't gone. And a lot of that time is because people haven't either had the data sheet or the information explained to them with regards to actually using those licensed drugs it's really important with a lot of the oral drugs that is given on an empty stomach. You can feed 30 to 60 minutes afterwards. The oral bioavailability of a MEPRAZOL is quite poor. It depends on what study you read, but anywhere between 4 and 10%. Everyone knows that those drugs are horrifically expensive. So if you're sticking it in the front end and it's coming straight out the back end because you fed it with food, that's a really expensive mistake to make. So actually using those licensed drugs as per the data sheet is really important. Your vet is allowed to prescribe medication that is not licensed for horses or is not licensed in the equine species. We can do that under what we term the cascade. So the cascade is is a very clear area. actually states that if there is a medication out there that is licensed for that species, you have to and should use that licensed preparation first. Under certain circumstances, and it's down to the individual case and the individual prescribing veterinary surgeon, that veterinary surgeon can then make the elective decision if in the patient's interest and welfare to change that medication, although there is a license preparation in place. Now, we within our practice, we try to conform to these rules, obviously, as much as we can. So we will always use a license preparation first. If we find a licensed preparation, either A, can't be used for some reason, so I don't know, a random example, your horse can't be wormed for love nor money. You try and get a syringe near that horse's mouth and essentially you squirt it halfway across the stable. Sometimes that's an expensive way to throw a drug away. It happens, we understand that even if you use a a twitch or some other form of restraint and you still can't get it in, that's sometimes a a justifiable reason to at least consider the Cascade's use. And the cascade use allows us then to go off-license. Obviously, using all of your management changes, your feeding changes, everything else has to come first. If you found all of that doesn't work, we can then go down the Cascade. The drugs that we are able to use, one of the main ones that most people use is a drug called sulcalphate. You should... Be handed a data sheet or a form of data sheet, and we have a, one of our governing bodies, Beaver, so the British Equine Veterinary Association, produce a lovely little handout explaining what sulcrayophyte is, what it does, and why it is used off license. And we find that in conjunction with ametrazole will work really well to street, treat a lot of equine squamous disease. Gastric disease is a minefield. We don't fully understand it. Again, I feel that doing the management changes is probably more important, actually finding the causative action of it rather than being wholly reliant on drugs. So Coming back, speaking to your veterinary practice, get them involved, get your feed company involved, looking at their overall management, the way in which they, they're fed, the way in which they exercise, all those things. There are lots of tips out there through from feeding a couple of kilos of forage before exercise. Um, oddly enough, we know that actually with regards to squamous disease, there is more of a risk and that if classically most people feed most of the hay overnight, and a small amount during the day. We actually find that actually that is a risk factor for equine squamous disease. So, actually, most horses should be eating 80% of their forage during the day and only 20% at night. And in fact, actually, if you think about a normal wild horse, it's going to be grazing all day. Is it going to be grazing all night? Unlikely. It's probably going to be more aware of predators and things like that. So, again, going back to what is basics for that horse, change the management first use the licence preparations, and if they're not working, discuss with your vet about the potential of using off-licence or cascade medications.
0: Big thanks to Ricky for all that valuable advice. And that's it for this week's Horse and Hound podcast. On the next episode, we'll be talking to Irish Olympic show jumper Billy Toomey, as well as catching up on this week's news and hearing from Ricky again, this time talking about the speedy tests which vets use to gain information when your horse is feeling under the weather. Goodbye until then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.